<laughs> okay, so guys, uh, today I want to talk about uh, a, a topic that came up when Chad was praying for the church. Uh, Praful, am I holding it the right way and at the right distance? Just one sec, guys, we've got to measure this. Okay, so... Uh, th this came up when Chad was praying and he talked about uh, us being so um, moved, so directed by the glory of God and nothing else. And so if you want a title for uh, what we're going to talk about today and perhaps for at least another week, it's Disruptive Glory. Disruptive Glory. That's the title. Disruptive Glory. Because when Chad was praying at the end, he said, Oh God, may we be so caught up in bringing you glory just like it used to be in the days of old when your glory alone was sufficient and Moses would not be able to minister, the priests would not be able to minister and disrupt our lives with your glory. And so felt that one of the things we should talk about is disruptive glory. Disruptive, disruptive glory. Don, learn how to share with Phoebe, please. Disruptive glory. Yeah? So, guys, how we define it is glory has three main components. Uh, components. <laughs> glory has three main parts. Glory has three main parts. And so, here goes. The first part if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that glory can be divided into these three main parts. The first part is the dazzling brightness or splendor of God. The dazzling brightness or splendor of God. The dazzling brightness or splendor of God is often referred to as glory in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so you read uh, passages like Exodus 19, verse 16 to 19, and you see that God came in amazing glory. So let's read these passages. There's a lot of reading to do today. Exodus 19, 16 to 19. It says there, um, on, the mo on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone on, in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered. So there is that part of God's glory which is dazzling brightness and splendor. Then there is glory that is his great power and strength. His great power and strength. His great power and strength. And you find that in passages like Psalm 105, verse 27 to 45, where it talks about how God led Israel out of Egypt with displays of strength and power, where it became the reason why Yahweh uh, uh, was given much glory, not just by Israel, but by the Egyptians who 
released them to go and by neighboring nations that kept a healthy distance because he delivered them by a mighty arm and a, an outstretched arm and a mighty hand or a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and so there is this aspect of glory that is attributed to his great power and strength and then the third part is majesty and honor majesty and honor majesty and honor majesty and honor and that's what you read in scriptures like isaiah 6 1 to 6 isaiah 6 1 to 6 is uh, uh, another scripture where you see that where I, I i saw the king seated on his throne his the train of his robe filled the temple and that is the idea of majesty and honor uh, very often what happens is in us as Christians, there is a soulish hunger after the first one, the dazzling brightness and splendor. And in, the, in our soulish hunger for brightness and splendor and dazzle, we forget that there are two aspects besides that to God's glory. And so we miss out on this in our pursuit of this. And I'd say all three apply. And we should hold them all together, not separate them. So disruptive glory, what disruptive glory does is disruptive glory. And why call it disruptive glory? Why not just call it glory? I call it disruptive glory because disruptive glory draws a distinction, draws a distinction between the one true God, between the one true God and all else. The one true God and all else. He disrupts what is normal and he makes it very obvious that he alone is God and nobody else is. And you see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament where you see God being disruptive when he brings forth his glory in, in Egypt and through the ten plagues makes Ra and every other Egyptian god bow down and all the Egyptians acknowledge that Israel's God is God alone. You take the journey through the wilderness and you come to Sinai and you see that this God is called the dread of Jacob and the nations around fear him for he can do mighty things like opening the Red Sea and completely drowning Pharaoh and his army bringing to their knees one of the mightiest empires that existed in the world at that time. You look at Carmel and you see Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 850 of them. And there's a disruptive glory that appears in the form of fire falling from heaven. And it creates a distinction between who is Yahweh and who is Baal. And it's settled once forever, bringing a nation that had slipped into apostasy back into worshipping the true God. You go to Matthew 17 and you uh, climb up with Peter, James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration and you see a revelation of who Christ is in his glory and once again there is a distinction where this is no ordinary man, this is the son of God himself and Elijah and Moses come and begin to talk with him and there is a voice from heaven saying this is my son like no other. Disruptive glory when a church gets a hang of it is the kind of glory that makes it obvious that their God is God alone. So much so that in 1 Peter 1.18, or 2 Peter 1.18 actually, P 
Peter is saying that, listen, we are not spinning fables and telling you stories. We are telling you what our eyes beheld on that mountain. And when we heard from on high, from the majesty, we heard that this son of mine is my begotten and my beloved. Listen to him. And then you go to Revelations 1 and John is on Patmos and you see once again the glory of the risen Christ being revealed in Revelations 1 where he appears, his eyes blazing like fire, his feet burning brass, his voice like mighty waterfall. No other, no other is able to stand up against him. You go to Revelations 4 and the heavens are opened and you hear Jesus saying, come up higher. And as John begins to see, he sees a scene from heaven where elders and angels fall before the one who is risen and who alone is God and his glory is like a thousand different gems with rainbow and in all hues and colors and below his feet is a sapphire a glass-like surface and they bow before him and they begin to worship very naturally because what else can you say when you behold the one true God you end up saying yours is the kingdom yours is the power yours is the majesty yours is the honor and this is what Chad was talking about when he prayed on Christmas Eve saying oh God we want to walk in this glory so that we may give you the honor and majesty because when people see what God can be through us Honor and majesty is given back to him. Disruptive glory. Thing is, guys, why is it that we don't experience this or haven't experienced it like we should? And uh, it's a horrible truth that I'm going to tell you that we cannot live this year, eh? At least I don't plan to live this year. With, with this next statement that I'm going to make. Guys, the reason we don't experience this kind of glory is because we try to accommodate his glory. We try to accommodate his glory. We try to accommodate his glory. It's like, okay, we got a service. We got our lives. We got the way we need to do church. We got to do our business this way. We got to run our family this way. We like the idea of your glory. We will make room for it. We will accommodate your glory. Here's the thing about God's glory. You cannot accommodate his glory. You can only be foolish and surrender to it. You cannot accommodate his glory. There is no worship service that can accommodate his glory. You can only be foolish and surrender to it. And this church, throughout this year, will be foolish and surrender to the glory of God. We will do nothing to accommodate it. We will not give him half an hour. We will not give him one hour. We will not give him ten minutes. We will not cause things to change so that his little desires can be accommodated. It is either all or none. You cannot accommodate his glory. You can only be foolish and surrender to it. You have to be foolish if you want to surrender to it. And if you surrender to it, he will deconstruct your present infrastructure. If you surrender to it, he will deconstruct your present infrastructure. He will deconstruct all that you've neatly planned with godly wisdom. Because glory trumps godly wisdom. 
What do you mean glory trumps godly wisdom? It is the presence, the majesty, the honor, the dazzling splendor, the power and the strength of God present amongst the people. You think that what you learned yesterday is sufficient to have you run tomorrow? If we surrender, he'll deconstruct our present infrastructure and I want him to. Because we have not gone the, this way before, guys. Where we are going, we haven't gone before. Joshua chapter 3, verse 4. Um, uh, God actually says to Joshua, Joshua, as they carry the ark, make sure there's a 2,000 feet distance between you and the ark. Because you haven't gone this way before. So keep sufficient distance. Watch where the ark is going. As they carry it, as I direct them, watch where it's going and keep a distance. One of the things I want to do and I'll let you know that by tomorrow, is, um, is have us engage in seven days of surrendering to God's glory. Night after night after night after night for seven days. Not a worship service, not a church service. But some form where you can participate, where in the beginning of the year, we say to God, Father, we have no desire to accommodate your glory. We're going to surrender to it. Be disruptive. Deconstruct our infrastructure. We surrender to it. We want to be foolish so that the world may be attracted to the only one who they should be attracted to through us. I'll tell you about it once we know exactly what God wants. Another word used in the Bible, uh, I, I can't get away from the simple statement that the reason we do not experience his glory is because we are always trying to accommodate it. As in, um, here is someone who's massive. We got a service to run. It'll take about two hours uh, or two and a half according to what Derek prayed today. And um, um, we just want to make sure that you get your time to, do you want to change a song? You think changing a song is glory? It is to be completely surrendered and foolish where you, you have no say in the matter because he alone is God and he runs everything. This is how Jesus used to live. And you think it applies to a two and a half hour service? It applies to my entire life, my finances, my business, my marriage, my home, my family. It applies to everything. It applies to parenting. Oh God, I surrender to your glory. Guys, just think of it. When the Ark of the Covenant moved into Obed-Edom's home, there was not a part of Obed-Edom's home that was not touched by the absolute glory of God. What does it look like? For this reason, we have arrived at this moment. Pastor Mike was saying that we've crossed over and we've come into a place of legacy. Where if we can show what this looks like, others will have shoulders to jump off instead of having to start from scratch. Another word for glory in the Bible that you often see, or, or, or you hear preachers preach it because the word actually does not exist, is Shekinah. You've heard of Shekinah glory. And the word Shekinah by itself is not really uh, something that the Bible uses. In fact, whenever it talks about the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, they call it Kabod Adonai. Kabod is glory, Adonai is Lord. Kabod Adonai. And when it comes to the New Testament, it talks about doxa, 
Doxa meaning glory and Korean meaning Lord. My brother-in-law will be very excited that the glory of the Lord means Doxa Korean because his last name is Korean. Anyways, Doxa Curios or Doxa Korean is the glory of the Lord. And the strange thing is Shekinah, the first instance of it is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Genesis 3, 23. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. And it says there, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We have always assumed that he placed there an angel with a sword. That's not true. What it is saying there is that at the entrance was an angel a cherubim who's almost, cherubims are almost always associated with the glory of God. You'll see it in Ezekiel, you'll see it in Isaiah. Cherubim, wherever cherubim appear, you know there is the glory of God. But it is that there was an angel there and there was a flaming sword and that is the first time you get an idea of the Shekinah as in the dazzling, blazing brilliance of God that cannot be gone past unless he allows it. It starts with this idea of a flaming sword. And if you go to Genesis 15, 17, and someone was reading from Genesis 15 today, Genesis 15, 17, you see another instance of God's glory. And this time it was to establish a covenant. And you read that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The idea of a flaming torch, once again, the Shekinah. What does Shekinah really mean? Shekinah means... The one who dwells. Isn't that such a beautiful term, man? When you think of Shekinah, you're saying, Shekinah basically means the one who dwells. The one who dwells. The one who dwells. You can see why in Deuteronomy 25, if you go to Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy 25, verse 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 25, verse 8 and 9. Then the elders of his town shall... Uh, Deuteronomy 25. Uh, verse 8. No, I got it wrong. Maybe it's Numbers 25. Nope. Maybe it's Exodus 25. Yeah, Exodus 25. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I showed you. It is this idea, Shekinah is the idea of the one who dwells. And in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, God says two things. One, listen. I want to dwell, and two, make me a tabernacle. Make me a tabernacle. Out of these two words comes the idea of Shekinah. One who dwells, and make me a tabernacle. One who dwells comes from a word called, it doesn't matter, we don't need to learn Hebrew, because uh, I don't know Hebrew anyways. I'd be quoting someone else. But the idea of Shekinah is the one who dwells, as in, I want to dwell with you, and two, I want to, can you make me a tabernacle? Why is this important? Because John 1.14, remember what it says? 
John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This idea of Shekinah has been so ancient and something so desirous in the heart of God that he was setting it up right from the beginning. Initially, he made this beautiful tabernacle called the earth and then placed man in it and began to walk around with man. Then he sets up a tent of meeting in the desert and he begins to occupy it. Then he turns up as God himself in Jesus Christ and you have the word becoming flesh and dwelling or tabernacling and we beheld his glory, John chapter 114. And then it takes it to the next step where the indwelling of the spirit makes us a temple of the indwelling Christ. The indwelling of the spirit makes us a temple of the indwelling Christ. And now where does the Shekinah glory live? In me. The same wind and fire that you saw on Mount Sinai, you see that same wind and fire on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the same wind and fire that caused God to arrive upon Mount Sinai is the same wind and fire that accompanies the arrival of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 verse 2. And now God indwells a new temple. A new temple that Paul then says is a mystery that has been hidden for generations and is now revealed. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the expectation or the hope of glory. Guys, this disruptive glory that we are talking about actually lives in us, but unfortunately we do not experience it the way we should because we are always trying to accommodate God in our lives. We are always trying to accommodate his glory. Tradition accommodates his glory. And don't you think we are not traditional? We're going to put to death those things that prevent God from bursting forth bit by bit by bit we'll kill it every day so that the legacy we leave is a legacy that boasts of nothing else but the glory of the risen Christ as Paul said that I will boast in nothing else let no flesh boast this is the legacy we leave for all the earth eh We got to build by pattern, Phoebe. We got to build by pattern so that you will not have to work hard when you grow up to walk into these because you will walk into these as if it's normal. So how do we go about making sure that this glory is not accommodated, that this disruptive glory is something that bursts through us so that God can be everything he wants to be without being veiled, without being limited. See, the great thing about Jesus was that the glory of God dwelt in him, and it says so in John 1.14, that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Go to John 1.14. Let's read the whole scripture. John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father and was full of grace and truth. 
The intent is, Father, can Acts 29, as a people, become uh, ones that allow you to be disruptive in your glory, transforming, changing, affecting, tearing down, building up, whatever you want to, without being accommodated, tolerated, limited, uh, 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 domesticated, tamed. There should be no taming of God. No taming of God. So how do we go about this? How do we do this? Guys, the first thing we do is we build by pattern. We talked about this before, but uh, one of the things that really bothered me is uh, um, a statement Chad made when he said, we, we lay aside trying to be cool Christians. I refuse this year to be a cool Christian. I refuse to be a sophisticated Christian. I refuse to be a Christian that is liked or accepted by all. I do not want that. I do not want that. It doesn't bring anything God's way. All it does is it brings things my way. I become acceptable. I become one who both knows Christ and knows how to live in the world. Don't want it, man. This year, we'll try not to conform to coolness, not to be sophisticated, not to follow trends, not to respond to stimuli the way the world expects the church to respond, not to be caught up in success, but only divine patterns, only divine patterns. Go back and keep checking. Either go back to the Word or go back to the Spirit of God or go back to what God has taught us in the past and say, what is the pattern here? If you go to Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 43, God says to Ezekiel, hey, listen, Teach them patterns, man. I'm showing you all this so that you can teach them patterns. Ezekiel 43, verse 11. Or starting at verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they've done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. Faithful to the design, follow all regulations. We cannot bring in the glory of God on new carts like the Philistines did in 2 Samuel 3. Where the Philistines realized they got to send the uh, uh, ark back. So what do they do? They get a brand new cart and they put the ark on the back of the cart and send it back. And what does David do? David copies what the Philistines have done. We do not copy what the world does. We do it the way heaven prescribes. This is why I said earlier that whenever a government or whenever a church or a people that belong to God begin to look to the government as the one that sets the agenda, they stop listening to heaven because heaven actually sets the agenda. It's not whether Trump becomes president or Biden becomes president that affects the kingdom. The kingdom is aware of every president, dictator, tyrant, um, duly elected official that ever existed and will ever exist in the future and heaven has remedies for all of it. When you think that the agenda of God will only progress if a certain man is on the throne, we have just displaced the one who is on the throne. 
We cannot bring in the glory on a new cart like the Philistines did in 2 Samuel 6.3. And the strange thing is, the indwelling glory, the Shekinah that is within us, the presence of the risen Christ by the indwelling spirit in us as a people is experienced only when divine patterns are followed. It is experienced only when divine patterns are followed. Go to Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9, verse 6 and verse 23. Leviticus 9, verse 6. Starting at verse 5. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the... Look at the words, man. This is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. There's specific instructions. You want the glory of the Lord to appear? This is what you have been commanded to do. And then verse 23. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, the blessed people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. The glory of the Lord enters a place or is experienced by a people in whom he dwells when they follow very specific instructions with regard to anything they do. Please don't think this applies to the church or applies to a worship service to, 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 uh, to, to, to try and bottle God in a worship service is dishonorable. This is not real life. This is a two-hour activity or an event. Your participation in this two hours does not say anything about you. Moses and Solomon knew this. Both of them knew that if you build according to pattern, God will validate. You see it in... Um, Exodus 25, 40, where God specifically says to Moses, Moses, make sure that the blueprint I showed you on Sinai is exactly how you build. In 1 Chronicles 28, 19, Solomon is instructed by David. David says, listen, I got this plan from God. Make sure when you build the temple, you build it accurately. Both of them stuck to the pattern. And when they stuck to the pattern, God validated what they did. In Exodus 40, verse 34, the glory of God entered the tent of meeting and the priest could not minister. Hundreds of years later, the ark has just come into the temple that Solomon built according to blueprint and the glory of God comes into the temple and nobody could stand or minister. What do you think will happen when Acts 29 builds according to the patterns of God in different areas? What do you think will happen? God will turn up and flesh will have no part of it and God will show off. This is what I desire even when I'm preaching. That I preach with everything I've got. That I exhort, I rebuke, I correct, I lift up, I um, declare whatever God wants. Sometimes prophetically, sometimes in a way that teaches. But at the end of the day, if I can put everything that I'm supposed to in it and step out of the way, then the... The strength and the power and the majesty and the honor and the dazzling brilliance of God will begin to affect lives like no orator can.
You can see why Paul loved the idea of his infirmities. We want to be sophisticated. We want to get all our words correct. We want to get the zoom right. We want to get the pictures right. We want to get the PowerPoint right. The presentation has to be perfect. Why? Because if the presentation is not good enough, people may be distracted. Really? You think that one day when you have to stand before a PowerPoint and the glory of God, which one will be more attractive? Glory or PowerPoint? My hope is that we do the best we can with everything that is given to us. But my God, there is someone else in this room, someone else in your house, someone else living within you, someone else who wants to connect so radically with you so that through you, the world is affected by His glory and that does not come with good pronunciation or good um, um, garments or whatever. It doesn't come with that. One of the reasons Jesus appeared the way he appeared, as someone you wouldn't give a second look to, as a dry shoot that came out of the ground, was because God wanted his glory to be the only thing that was seen through his son and not some handsome, hair-flowing, sharp-nosed, half-white, half-brown guy walking the streets of Palestine. He was not worth a second look. You can see now why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God uses the foolishness, his foolishness to confound the wise of the world so that no flesh may boast in his presence. Begin to revel in the fact that you are a cracked jar of clay. That you will begin to boast in your infirmities. That we will keep changing, that we will keep getting healed. But that the treasure is in the jar of clay. that we'll build according to pattern. Another thing that's necessary for disruptive glory is the fear of God. The fear of God. There must be the fear of a holy God. The fear of a holy God precedes glory. The fear of a holy God precedes glory. It's time for us to return to having fear in the actual sense of awe and reverence that makes you a little scared. Fear of a holy God. I've often described the fear of God in the New Testament as the, as, as the fear of offending the one you love because it grieves your heart to offend him. And that is absolutely true. But now to that definition, I want to add this idea of awe and reverence where there is something so um, ununderstandable and mysterious about God that we don't think of him as buddy Jesus. Got to make sure that there's sufficient awe and reverence and because 
the fear of God always precedes the glory of God in the Bible. You go to Genesis 15, 17. You go to um, Exodus 20, 18 to 21. You go to 1 Kings 8, 12. And in each of those situations where God showed up, there was actually a time of darkness or dense clouds or an odd, deep heaviness or dread that preceded his arrival. In fact, Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.12, the Lord has said that he will dwell in a dark cloud. So and so that Paul in Hebrews 12.29 says, hey, listen, God is a consuming fire. So make sure that there is awe and reverence as you approach him, even as he shakes things. When he came on Mount Sinai, the people said, could you make sure that you go talk to him because this is um, terrifying. In the New Testament, whenever God actually showed up, people had to be lifted off the floor, including John, who actually walked with Jesus. And the words that had to be spoken by either an angel or by God was, do not be afraid. I pray that either during the seven days or during this year, we will once again know the fear of God so that we have an awe and reverence for him. And so that the areas where we tolerate what is not to be tolerated will no longer be tolerated. We are not here to accommodate his glory. We are here to absolutely surrender to him. I've got a word for a uh, person called Susanna, who somebody in the church um, mentioned. And so here is the word for Susanna. Susanna. I loosen the vice-like grip on your life. I loosen constraints that tradition and people have put on you. I take away the bit and bridle. I transform you from a, I don't even know how to pronounce this word, Lipizzaner, or it's a kind of horse that does these horse shows in Leipzig in Austria. I transform you from a Lipizzaner to a horse that runs the hills and valleys, mane flying in the air. I turn your chair into a recliner, your table into a canvas that you can paint on, your bed into a hammock. I give you Psalm 27 verse 1 from the message, light space zest that's me god so with me, me on your side be fearless afraid of no one and nothing i want to be your choreographer and return to you the joy of abandon the best way i can describe it is uh, if you were to watch the dubai fountain video just google it you'll see these fountains just set to music choreographed where they just erupt when I made you and this was how you were when I made you I made you eruptive it was who you were and you are most creative in my hands when you are eruptive come away with me this year and let me teach you once again the rhythms of grace 
That's for someone called Suzanne. The next way that, uh, guys, the thing is, once we know the fear of God, which precedes the glory of God, you will find that your worship begins to change. Your worship will begin to change. Because there is a tendency in most churches, and especially among the younger believers, and so another way of saying that is the young adults, uh, especially among younger believers or young adults, there is a tendency to really be touched by or drawn by um, songs that are written by, say, hill songs or by Jesus culture and so on. Nothing wrong. We sing that here. I really like those songs. But they are very evocative. They're very emotional. They draw you to the love of God. And one of the things that happens once you realize what awe and reverence is, is that you begin to enter into an explosive form of worship where his dazzling power, majesty, and presence is far more enamoring than his um, than him being the one who loves you. Nothing wrong with that. But there is another place in worship that God wants to take us to. In 2 Chronicles 7 2, when people see how God sends fire from heaven in response to what they have done, I mean, you should read it. I love the way some of these scriptures are written. 2 Chronicles 7 2. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all, verse 3, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good and His love endures forever. Guys, I long for the day, this year, when it'll be, it won't be possible to stop because in bursts, in explosive bursts around the church, worship will just spontaneously burst forth. It'll be like fountains being opened. It'll have nothing to do with the worship leader. I look forward to that day in this church because of the awe and the reverence that we will develop and for the glory of God that we will see in a completely different way. I don't know whether we will see the dazzling brilliance of God. I've, I've heard of it happen. I've never seen it myself. I've known the presence of God so tangibly that I've leapt off the bed and laid down on the floor weeping uncontrollably and scared of His presence. But I've never seen some of the things that others have seen in present-day Christianity. Like I said, the soul hungers after experiences like that, but in the process may sometimes miss out on the majesty, the strength, the honor, and the power of God in chasing after dazzling brilliance. And that is when deception can creep in, as it has in churches across the earth, especially in California. But you have to take things with a tinge of, is it salt or pepper? Salt. <sighs> Guys, I'm not teaching this so that we learn something or we get some information about the glory of God. <laughs> 
That'd be so pointless. I'm teaching this because this is what God wants to do. Do you understand? That's a huge difference, man. If I was teaching this because I want you to know about glory, that's one thing. Oh, so we know about glory. Big deal. I'm teaching this because this is what God wants to do in our midst. He's giving us uh, instructions so that when uh, it happens, we have the knowledge base for this to have roots. Otherwise, we don't know what is happening. That's when Christopher Columbus lands up in North America and calls us Indians. You don't want... This is when there's a knowledge base now. And into that knowledge base that God is now supplying, God can plant his glory. The next thing that helps us um, embrace disruptive glory is the idea of following presence. Follow his presence. Because we, we established this earlier on when we were talking about Shekinah, that the indwelling of the Spirit makes us a temple of the indwelling Christ, who is the Shekinah glory. Uh, let me repeat that again. The indwelling of the Spirit in us makes us a temple for the indwelling of Christ, who is the Shekinah, or the glory of God. So, one of the ways we can have the glory of God in our midst become evident to others, the intent is, can we enjoy it and then can others experience it? One of the ways is to follow his presence. Follow, follow his presence either through the word or by the spirit or through his voice. Follow his presence because he who follows his presence will find glory. He who follows the presence of God will find the glory of God. He who follows the presence of God will find the glory of God. Follow presence and the glory will be visible over you and through you. Follow his presence and the glory of God will be visible through you and will be visible over you. Follow his presence and the glory of God will be visible through you and will be visible over you. It's, it's a cry of my heart this year. Father, can I follow your presence every hour of the day so that your glory may be evident to, through me? I mean, when you look at Levitic, uh, Numbers 9, uh, I mean, we, we, we really give Israel a bad rap because of the way they weren't able to fulfill certain things. But then you should see what Israel was able to fulfill. Uh, numbers 9, verse 15 onwards. Man, imagine this, eh? Imagine this. Numbers 9, 15 onwards. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up, the cloud covered it. From the evening till the morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night, it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out. At his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. 
Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, or a month, or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Brilliant, eh? What kind of people are these? You're talking about a million people. Sometimes they've just put down their tent pegs. It's only 6 in the evening, but 6 a.m. in the morning, just when the kids are hitting REM, the cloud begins to move, and now they all pack up, and now they've got to move. Man, you could see why the glory of God was ever present with them. You could see why Moses knew that if your presence does not go with me, do not take me from here. I don't want to go. My God, the places we go to without the presence of God. <sighs> A lot of places we go to, we go with prayer, not with presence. I want to change that. When, you, when the presence goes with you, you pray less. In everything, eh? There's nothing that is exempt from his sovereign uh, guardianship and keeping. They knew how to follow. They knew how to follow presence. In Exodus 30, 13, Exodus 13, verse 22, we know that the pillar of cloud used to go before them. It, said, it says that the pillar of cloud went ahead of them, so the, all of Israel would follow after them. But then, once you follow presence, you find glory, and the glory of God can be extremely um, protective. It, it, it becomes your God. It becomes something that nothing can penetrate. Why? Because you're walking now, in or under the presence of God. So in Exodus 13, 22, it says the pillar of cloud went ahead. Then in 14, 20, it's brilliant what happens. In 14, 20, it says the pillar of cloud moved from the front to the back. And then it says that God looked down from the pillar of cloud at the Egyptian army. It's, I mean, it's almost like a movie. He looked down at them. And then it says later on, that after looking down at them, he decided that he would now send a little bit of confusion into their ranks. In Exodus 33.10, it says that the pillar of cloud that used to lead them, whenever Moses would go into the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud would come and settle at the entrance of the meeting while Moses was inside and his face would glow with the radiance of God. In Exodus 16, verse 10, it says that the pillar of cloud would begin to emanate with such brilliance that people would say the glory of God is visible in the cloud. So Jacob, does this happen today? We don't have any cloud to follow. True, but we have the Shekinah of God dwelling in us, not outside us. It is not a Moses that experiences it. It is the Jacobs and the Karunas and the um, Pavans and the, um, um, I'm looking for uh, this guy's handle. 
Kevin's handle. What's the email? Uh, what's it? What, uh, and Warblebees. Uh, uh, all these guys begin to partake in this. It's not just a few. Uh, and inside you now is the Shekinah. But to know his presence, the glory of God becomes a canopy above you. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. The glory of God becomes a canopy above you. Isaiah 58, the glory of God becomes your rear guard. Isaiah 60, arise and shine for the glory of God has risen upon you. Where do you go then, man? Once you start following presence. And guess what happens to people who come into contact with you? What do you think happens to them? They um, end up meeting the God in you through the you in God. Should we long for a tangible experience? I don't think so, because um, we're not a people who live by sight. We are a people who live by faith. Any encounter that happens will be an encounter that the Holy Spirit will have to bring out of his own sovereign desire and intent. Because in our longing for tangible experiences, we can miss out on the as real indwelling practice of God's presence. We can lose it. And that's happening to so many churches. There are brilliant churches, guys. Churches that are so much better than us. But where one of the things that's happened to them is, 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 the, is, is the running after tangible assurances and running after what they think is presence. And in the process, so much deception comes in. Another thing that happens when glory becomes something we embrace is glory disrupts powers and glory disrupts the systems of the world. Glory disrupts powers and glory disrupts the systems of the world. Nothing is as frightening to Satan and the satanic kingdom as a people who have suddenly come to know what it is to both experience and express the glory of God. Nothing is as frightening. See, we must remember one thing. Satan has seen God in his brilliance and his glory. And it frightens him. He knows what the dazzling brilliance of God is. He was kicked out from there. Disruptive glory is the key to the holy war that we are in. Disruptive glory is the key to the holy war that we are in. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 says, The glory of the latter temple will be greater than the former. And know this, I mean, let's read it. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Haggai 2, verse 7 and 8. 
starting at 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the desire of the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. As if... He didn't want us to miss out on the fact that, listen, this is not some ordinary prophet speaking. This is the Lord Almighty speaking, and he keeps repeating it. And he wants us to know that the temple that he is rebuilding, as in us, the church that he's rebuilding, will be furnished by the shaking of nations and the shaking of powers. And when nations and powers are shaken, you gather the spoils. When nations and powers are shaken, you gather the spoils. That's what he's saying here, guys. Isaiah 60, go to Isaiah 60. It's this continuous commentary on what the church is supposed to be. Go to Isaiah 60. Listen to it. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look, all assemble and come to you, your sons from far, your daughters carried on their arms. Go to verse... Um, uh, five. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come to you. Herds of camels will cover your land. Uh, all uh, from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense. Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth. Who are these? That, uh, it just goes on. Foreigners will, verse 10, foreigners will rebuild your walls. Your gates will always stand open. They'll never shut day or night. That men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation of the kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It'll be utterly ruined. What is God saying here? As I begin to build my kingdom and church, as I begin to build my temple, the temple will be furnished by the wealth of nations. Uh, what do you mean by temple will be furnished by wealth of nations? It'd be easy to say, oh, by souls. But unfortunately, as noble as that sounds, Haggai chapter 2, 7 says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. He actually means three things. One, he means the wealth of the nations as in real wealth. Two, he means silver and gold. Three, he means souls. It's all three. It's not one or the other. Know that once disruptive glory becomes part of the equation of a church there is a gathering of spoils one of the coolest stories in the bible is first samuel chapter 5 where philistines capture the ark and they take it into the temple of dagon and they set it up in the temple of dagon and first samuel 5 verse 4 says and dagon fell on his face and he was broken in many pieces and they could not put humpty dumpty back together again and so what do they do? They got to get rid of the ark. How do they get rid of the ark? You go to 1 Samuel 6 verse 5 and they realize that to send back the ark by itself won't do. So they make gold tumors and gold mice to send as a gift to appease Yahweh. Whenever there is disruptive glory that goes into spiritual warfare, there are always spoils. So let me read that again. We can explore it later. Disruptive glory is the key to the holy war we are in. 
the temple will be rebuilt and furnished by the shaking of nations and by the shaking of evil powers and there will be a gathering of spoils what are the spoils the spoils are the wealth of the nations isaiah 60 verse 5 the spoils are silver and gold Haggai chapter 2 verse 8 the spoils are the souls of men isaiah 43 verse 6 and 7 see the the problem with the prosperity gospel is it gets satiated with the spoils that are wealth and money and it loses its hunger for the souls of men that's what happens with the prosperity gospel the prosperity gospel begins to run after the first category the wealth of the nations and forgets the souls of men unlike abraham who says to the king of sodom you can keep all the wealth i don't want to touch it but at the same time guys don't be cynical of wealth because cynicism severs me from divine experiences whatever you're cynical about whatever you despise you will not possess i cannot be cynical about wealth because cynicism in the kingdom always severs me from divine experiences whatever you despise you will not possess even if it comes your way. It's like that story where you will see it, but you will not eat it. Why stop here and talk so much about this? Because I really believe based on what was spoken on Christmas Eve that just like poverty can be endemic in some churches, plenty also can be... uh, released to churches so that churches in turn can be conduits that can release it further expect it expect it ah i wish you were here so that someone would whisper an amen i'm sure all of you are saying amen here in this room but those masks of yours don't allow me to see what you're mouthing Last point, man, we might finish so early that we won't even be able to fulfill um, Derek's prayer to finish in two and a half hours. Don't worry, we'll find something to do. Guys, glory begins where flesh ends. Glory begins where flesh ends. If you go to Exodus 40, verse 34, Let's read these scriptures together. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Go to Second Chronicles 5, 13. Second Chronicles five thirteen. Second Chronicles five thirteen. Starting at verse eleven. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of the divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, and Jedithun, 
and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals and harps and lyres. Liars. They were accompanied by, accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice they, to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voice in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good and he, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Go to Second Chronicles 7, verse 3. This is shortly before Solomon prays, and then after Solomon prays, it happens again. So this was twice in a matter of hours. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled it. When all Israelites, uh, yeah. Now go to Revelations 15, verse 13. Revelations 15, verse 13. Revelations 15. Not 15, 13, must be... 15, yeah, 15, 8. Revelations 15, 8. Let's start at 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was completed. At the end of the day, Glory begins when flesh ends. Neither Moses, nor the priests, nor the angels, nor the elders could stand before God or perform their service to God once the glory of God became, came into a place. What does it look like in the New Testament, man? In today's world, what does it look like? What will it be like when a people are no longer interested in accommodating God's splendor, but they're only interested in just abjectly surrendering foolishly, helplessly to the glory of God, which is not coming from the outside in, but is bursting forth from the inside out. Because he now, Shekinah, remember the de definition of Shekinah? Shekinah is the one who dwells. And the one who dwells in a tabernacle, the one who dwells in a tabernacle called his people. What will it look like, guys? I don't want an anecdotal experience that we will write down in a journal and keep for the next 40 years telling our children, oh, when daddy was young. No, come on, man. That is so not what we're looking for. It has to be something that a people experience because their God is 24-7. Come on, Acts 29. This is our moment from God. This is not something that we are pining for or uh, having to climb a mountain for. This is the God who claimed down the mountain and he's saying, hey, this is what I want to do with you. You ready? Remember what I said. I'm teaching this not because we want to... Um, find out or want information on this. I'm teaching this because this is what God wants to do. 
when when the glory of god begins to uh, become evident amongst the people then the people begin to work the works of another because they begin to live the life of another when the glory of god becomes evident amongst the people because to begin with it is indwelling the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the difference is now others will behold his glory because he dwells amongst us and they will know that he is one who is full of truth and grace and you think it won't affect them we will not be able to perform our service the way we want to jacob may not get to preach for an hour can you believe how difficult that will be i was shocked when i found out that uh, on december two sundays ago i preached for 89 minutes I just wondered why I didn't go 90. That's just on the side. Really bad joke. Really bad. I told myself I wouldn't do this in 2021. You know what happens in New Year resolutions. So back to what we are saying, which is more important, guys. The thing with uh, the glory of God being evident amongst the people is one: uh, you begin to work the works of another without even effort eh the works of another begin to express because you are living the life of another someone else's life is what we begin to live and therefore someone else's works is what happens in our midst and to others john 663 comes out so alive and fresh that the flesh profits nothing the spirit gives life because at the end of the day it is the indwelling spirit who brings the shekinah or the indwelling christ in our midst the flesh profits nothing glory begins when flesh ends i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to it because in a sense guys it's very freeing huh it is very freeing that jacob does not have to worry about jacob or how jacob will appear or what jacob or what people will think of jacob or what jacob thinks of jacob it doesn't matter anymore because he's beginning to step out of the way and as he begins to step out of the way god your 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 god this amazing amazing god becomes more and more evident and what do you want more than that what do i want more than that what does acts 29 want more than that isn't that the only reason you exist to pour out god by pouring out your life is there any other reason you we meeting together or we being together not meeting together this is what we live for guys glory begins when flesh ends and it is transformative it is transformative john chapter 2 verse 11 says and this is how uh, god first this is how jesus first revealed his glory and what was the way he revealed his glory he did something transformational at the wedding in cana he turned water into wine it transforms things Second Corinthians three eighteen says about the same thing that as we behold His glory, we get changed. We get changed. There's something about people beholding the glory of God through you that begins to change them. There is something about a church that understands that Shekinah is present because Christ is present, and we have no desire to accommodate you in our service. We just have this desire to be foolish and surrender to you. So have your own way, God. Have your own way. You are the Potter. I am the clay. make me and mold me after your will 
While I am waiting, always, every day, every hour, yielded and still, I got no desire to accommodate you. <laughs> I just want to surrender foolishly, Lord. To the audacity that we have to think that we can accommodate the glory of God. What are we talking about? The splendor, the strength, the honor, the majesty, and the dazzling brilliance of God? Oh, we'll give you a little corner? Really? What do you know? I'm done. What do we do now, guys? So here's what I'm thinking, huh, guys, and I'll let you know for sure by tonight or tomorrow afternoon, hopefully. I'm thinking that we've done this once in the past, ages ago, when we used to meet at um, South Hall on Ross Street. Here's what I'm thinking, that either starting Tuesday or Wednesday, and I know you guys have house church too, and so we'll work that out, I don't know how. I'm thinking that for seven nights in a row. And this doesn't mean that there'll be worship every night or stuff like that. For seven nights in a row, we will surrender to and invite into our presence, make way for the glory of God so that he can disrupt and transform lives. Start the year off that way. Some churches do a 21-day fast. Some churches have a reading plan. I just feel that this is something God wants to do in our midst. So just be aware of it so you'll get, like you used to get links every mishmash. Uh, you'll get links for what shall we call it? There's a church that I know in Bristol that used to call it 10 Days of Glory. Um, sounds a little corny, but we might have to go 7 Days of Glory or something. The name doesn't matter. Um, the point is that um, I think that's something God would like to do in our midst, and it won't be like a service. That's not what he's after. So let's just... Be quiet for a moment and see if God wants something else done. Otherwise, we can call it a day. Hey guys, so so we're going to put up the song, uh, but the way you sing it is not as a song of worship, but a song of, uh, but as a prayer. Um, and it's that song which says, "Oh, the glory of your presence, be your children, give you reverence, arise from your rest, and be blessed with our praise as we worship." 
in your embrace as your glory now fills this place. Yeah? Could you pray it for us? Could you pray it for us? Don't pray it for yourself. Don't sing it as a worship song. Sing it as a song of prayer. Could you with all your heart pray it for us so that we may leave a legacy here on earth? Yeah?